Welcome to the Contracting Officer Podcast. It's not just for contracting officers. If you work anywhere in the government acquisition world, this podcast is for you. Whether you work for government or industry, we're here to help you understand a little more about how the other side thinks. This episode is brought to you by Skyway Acquisition. Skyway's team of former contracting officers and industry pros will make you more prepared, more competitive, and more effective in the government market. Visit skywaymember.com to learn more. For today's episode, we decided to revisit the 80-20 rule in government contracting. Let's get started. In an early, early episode of the podcast, we described that how in a lot of cases, winning government business has more to do with the process than the relationships between the buyers and the sellers. We call it the 80-20 rule, but flipped on its head. What we said was in, in the commercial world, 80% of the sale is through relationships. In other words, it's do they know, like, and trust you? And then 20% is on the mechanics of the bid and and the actual contract you have and is your price reasonable, et cetera. In the government world, it's 80% process. Did you follow section L&M? And 20% of that is going to be the relationships. Do they know, like, and trust you? This is a huge generalization, though, because government contracting is not that simple. So it's really a strata. It's a continuum of the 80-20 rule. It's different. It's inherently different than the commercial market. We've had a lot of conversations about the 80-20 rule throughout all of our podcasts. We want to expand on how the 80-20 rule depends, on how it, how it shifts depending on the acquisition type in a way that we did not cover in the original episode. Before we get any farther, where does it fit? Where are we talking about the 80-20 rule? It, it's all over all of the acquisition time zones. I know that we link it to the RFP zone and the source selection zone where you're writing a proposal, where you're evaluating a proposal. That's the process part of it. But if you only think about it during those zones, you're hurting yourself because the relationships are the part that matters when the requirements are being created, when the market research being is being done. It still matters a little bit during the RFP zone and the source selection zone, but that's where the process can trump the relationship. And there's even a process for the market research zone. Because you, you got to you got to formally respond to that RFI if that's how the government chooses to collect information. Right, right. Process matters everywhere too. Okay, the flipped eighty twenty rule that we always talk about. This is it's generally true for routine bids, but it marches towards being more twenty eighty as the size of the acquisition grows. So it marches back towards more how the commercial industry gets things done as the size of the acquisition grows. We talk a lot about targeting. What we're talking about here is shaping, is how are you shaping the requirement so that it marches toward that 2080. Right. Your relationship can help change the way that the government requests proposals. It can help change the requirements. It can help change the landscape that you're going to compete on. For the largest acquisitions, the relationships are crucial. If there's if there's a B in the number, if we're talking billions here, like major systems acquisitions, ships and aircraft and all those other things that we talk about all the time. If there's a B, relationships matter. And those relationships begin years before the acquisition. Industry goes to great lengths to shape these acquisitions. By shaping, I mean to to convince the government to write those requirements and the evaluation criteria in a way that favors only their company. And at the highest level, this shaping is done by lobbyists who, who are hired to influence Congress to appropriate funding for requirement in a way that only your company can win. 
Now, that costs a lot of money and takes a lot of time. So that doesn't happen at the lowest levels like it does for the giant acquisitions that are out there. Speaking of things that I didn't know that I didn't know, as a contracting officer, this is stuff that I, I wasn't tracking. I wasn't paying attention to it. I am the type of CEO who loved to compete everything and to think. <laughs> and, and industry hates people like me, right? So it's, <laughs> it's funny how it, it, but there's a balance like everything else that we do. So the idea here is as a contracting officer or as a government person, understand this process is happening and it's, it's not inherently bad. We're going to talk later about when it crosses the line into bad. But functionally, they're, they're trying to solve a problem for the government. And when the, when, like you said, when there's a B in front, of the, in front of the price, the rules change a little bit. And we under-explained that the first time we went through the 80-20 rule. There's an entire industry that exists to build these relationships and drive the government market in certain directions. It's common for senior government officials to retire or, or just leave government service and move to the industry side solely on the basis of their contacts. They used to say that that you got a job based on your Rolodex. You know, that was that this is going back in time pre-digital. <laughs> Guys had a little thing on their desk that actually spun around that contained all the business cards and information for everyone. And it was alphabetized and you'd spin around it rolled. I don't think anyone well, people still say Rolodex anymore. I'm not sure how many people have a Rolodex anymore. And, and there's an example of a company that I don't think exists anymore because Rolodex was the brand name, right? It was like, <laughs> <laughs> so it was basically, it was a contact tracker. That's all it really was. But anyway. Okay. So guys with the biggest Rolodex, guys with the most contacts, they get big jobs in industry. If you're, if you're a general, if you're retiring from the military as a general, or if you were the senior official, the head of an agency, it's very common for those folks to move into senior positions in the industries that serve their former agencies. And there are all kinds of rules about how that works. There's also a whole industry of folks who lobby Congress on behalf of the industry, and it's all based on how good are their contacts. Do they have access to the right people? Can they get the right meeting to get the right words in someone's ears to influence an acquisition? There's consulting firms made up of former generals and former agency officials that the whole purpose of the firm is to advise industry and to help make those contacts and grease the wheels. Like I mentioned before, highly influential people on the government side who move to the industry side are hired by industry on the basis of who they know. If you see someone with a title of senior vice president of and then the of is something that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, you know, it doesn't say they're in charge of a division or a particular piece of work, or a particular program. It says senior vice president of something random. That's such they a great have, title. They, yeah, senior vice president of something random. Well, that person is there. They've got the title to represent their level of influence within the company, but they're there because of their contacts, not because they do a job running something big or have a lot of, they're in charge of a lot of money. They're there for their contacts. At a lower level, the business development and capture functions in companies exist to build the relationships that drive the acquisitions. So there's lots of folks that maybe weren't former government officials, but they spend all their time going out to industry days, building those relationships, trying to shape future acquisitions. And, and something for us to cover in a future podcast, maybe with a business development person as a guest, is I'm seeing this trend of smaller companies jumping on this skill too soon. What I mean by that is they'll go hire a business development person who goes out and creates opportunities for them that are going to bear fruit three years from now. But the company doesn't have the cash flow and the experience and the, and the overhead to wait that long so they get frustrated. I've heard that story a couple of times from podcast listeners, actually. 
but as a small business, be wary that you don't jump too far forward and you know, build an opportunity for something that's just, it's, it's out of your weight class. It's too far ahead. Yeah. Good point. You may be building it for someone else. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that. That's a really good point. This is communication. I mean, communication is a good thing in, in the complex sale, which you've heard me talk about probably in webinars. I, I talk about the idea of a proposal is the last step in a complex sale, right? Well, this right. is a really complex sale. This is years in the making. This is how the process works. So you can understand what is industry's capability. Now, yes, they're shaping it for them, but understand that they need to know what can we actually win this? If we can't win this in this way, we're not going to spend the time. We're not going to come visit you and come you know, give you lots of insight and, and, and RFI responses if it's not shaped in a way that we can even be compatible for it. Right. If you want a robust competition on the government side, then your requirement set and your evaluation criteria is some combination of all those companies shaping efforts in a way that they can all compete. For a large multiple award service contract, you'll have lots of companies trying to shape what the actual structure of the contract is, the past performance references, how long the past performance is relevant, the type, how many PhDs are needed. All of those things right. is part of the shaping. That is a good thing because you want companies who are able to do this to be willing to invest the time to fly to your industry day, to send a team of four people to sit there and listen to you talk. And I had no idea that you know, that's that's who's there. <laughs> that's who's showing up for industry day and, and like listening to your your acquisition plan is the people who see that they have a chance to help shape this and eventually win it. Because if they don't think they can win it and they can't shape it, they shouldn't be there. And which means you're talking to an empty room and you've got no competition. And so th there's value in this from the government side. Now, there is no such thing as an unfair competitive advantage. A competitive advantage is an advantage. Now, it's it's illegal if you get that advantage through means that you should not have gotten. If you broke into someone's office and stole the information, okay, that's a different problem. What we're talking about here is someone having a competitive advantage because they invested the time and money in getting the right people and learning more about this agency and getting to know your customer base so they could give you the best solution. That's not an unfair competitive advantage. That's an advantage that they earned and spent money to get and time to get. I think the government would consider it an unfair competitive advantage if some of the competitors got access to inside government information that is in violation of the regulations on sharing that information. So if they have that and not everyone has it, they have what the government considers to be unfair. If they have more information because they worked harder or because they have these relationships and they've, they've learned more by talking to people, that's not unfair. We did an episode about an organizational conflict of interest. That's how this is dealt with, is if you have an unfair competitive advantage because you're sitting in the office and you're helping to write the requirement, <laughs> you have a conflict. But understand that these that, that I just I want to foot stomp this idea of an unfair competitive advantage is, is something that I got hung up on because a company had gotten a whole lot of information just by sheer volume of trying. And that's not unfair. That's just them hustling. Some companies just have better outreach, better salesmen than other companies. And the last thing I want to do as a contracting officer is award a contract to somebody who has just the best proposal writer. That they're, it's, the, it's the shiniest diamond that just shows Right. Up. What you really want is to award a contract to someone who will deliver on time, on budget, and meet the mission of your customer. Exactly. And I should point out that there's a limit to how far these relationships can go in the government world. It's actually pretty well-defined 
what kind of gifts that commercial industry can provide. You know, bribes? No, you can't can't bribe. But it's funny when when I was buying commercial aircraft, I can vividly remember visiting the factory for for one of the competitors and out on the table they had they showed all the stuff that they usually give to folks who are buying multi-billion dollar jets, right? Leather briefcases, radios, all kinds of great things. Well, at the time they seemed like great things. And <laughs> and our the salesman, the guy that we were dealing with, he 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 pointed to the table and he said, "Here's what we give to everybody else, but because of the government rules, we have these nice coffee mugs for you guys." <laughs> They were under the limit of what they could present us. And I remember thinking, I'm in the wrong job. It's a very nice coffee mug, but still. Do you, do you still have it? No, I actually don't. Okay, <laughs> Last thing before we move on from the government. If you're talking about a very large acquisition and if there's lobbyists involved and influences at the highest level of government, if it's actually big enough that the appropriations language spells out this money is appropriated for this, you may end up with with a non-directed, directed sole source. Congress isn't going to write, in most cases, you must award th- this $20 million, this $200 million is for this company to do this. Congress is unlikely to get involved that directly, but they might write the language so that this $200 million is for this, 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 this. And all the conditions make it so it can only go to one company anyway. And that's the ultimate coup d'etat by in the competitive world. Yeah, and I, I had one of those as a contracting officer, yeah. and it kind of makes my skin crawl, but that's, you know. It's a competition, but yeah, it just, it's, it's not a competition. It, it, it's a competition that's happening before. <laughs> right, right. You already lost before the RFP is out. Yeah, and so talk about, yeah, talk about something being wired, but. Anyway, yeah, so n- now we're talking about now we're talking about industry. We're talking about wiring it right. This is why industry should care. If you don't have relationships with the right people on major competitions, for sure, you will likely lose. And it's true on the smaller acquisitions as well, but not to the same extent. It's like we've been talking about the eighty twenty rule that we flipped, where eighty percent of government acquisition is the process and twenty percent is the relationship. It morphs back to the other direction, to the normal direction where it's 80% relationship, the bigger and the more important the acquisition is. Industry, you have to understand who are the decision makers in this acquisition? Who are the influences? You must find this out. Who's the source selection authority? Who's the contracting officer? Who are the users and, and what, what do they like? What do they, what do they want? They're going to have an influence on the decision. Who are the CETAs? Who, who are these the, the paid experts, the non-government employees that the government's hired to advise them on this acquisition? Those people's opinions may be the only thing driving the technical evaluation because the government folks may not have the depth to understand everything. If you don't understand what they think, you may not have a chance. And, and at the higher levels, what does the head of the agency think about this acquisition? What does Congress think about it at the highest levels? What has Congress been lobbied to think about it? It matters. Yeah, and, and you're talking really big picture. And, and normally we keep the CEO podcast at the ground level, but this happens. I mean, it's, it's important for people to understand that right, wrong, and different. You can see both sides of it. You can argue both sides of it. But it, it is important to understand if you think it's 80% process and it's not, yeah. <laughs> you're going to lose. You're going to take it to chops. 
Yeah. So we're not talking about how you lobby, but it is good to understand that it happens. And the more money that's involved, the more these relationships, the more the lobbying matters. For less complex or lower dollar acquisitions, relative to what that agency usually buys, just meeting the requirement at the lowest price or the best value price, that, that can win for you. But for major acquisitions, building the relationships and influencing the eventual outcome, that can take place for years before the RFP is released. And remember, even if everything is greased, you can still lose based on a process foul. So that the process piece never leaves the 80-20 rule. Even if even if it's shifted to 95% influence, there's still some process involved. You have to follow the rules that are laid out in the request for proposal or quote. I remember one time one of our one of our customers, he was telling me a story of he had an opportunity that he had shaped really well. This is probably like a three or four million dollar one. Big for him relative for a small business. And it was so well shaped that you know, the government was expecting to see his proposal. And he sent it in at like, you know, midnight or something the night before. And he typed the address as, you know, so-and-so dot milt, M-I-L-T. And then he went to bed. And then he comes in the next morning, gets an email <laughs> from the government's folks saying, we didn't get your proposal. And he looks and realizes, oh, crap, I typed it wrong. Well, guess what? The process smacked upside the head because his proposal is late. And this wasn't a sole source. This was a competitive. And they, they literally can't let him in because uh, so he tells that it, is painful. And he tells that story to everybody because he's like, there's always some kind of process. And, you know, that's okay. Is that easy? Would that have been easy to avoid? Well, sure. But you know what? Most of the time you're doing the proposal last night. Yeah. After being up two days straight, trying to finish up the proposal, you can see how you can mistype it. But, oh, man, read receipts, delivery receipts are very important on email kind of things. Another point to consider here is that, okay, if you're a large business We've talked through all this. It, it makes sense for you, as particularly as a, as a mega large business. But as a small business, you don't get a pass on this because a couple of things are happening. One, it, you're probably going to be a sub. Large businesses have subcontracting plans. So the relationships you've built as a subcontractor, they're expecting you to be paying attention to this. They may be expecting you to find out who's the source selection authority because you're able to find that out because you happen to be with that agency or your right, right. them or whatever. So even if you're a small business, this process impacts you. So be aware of it. That's a really good point to wrap this up with. So take us home, Kevin. The biggest points here are it depends. The concept of it depends applies because the 80-20 rule, it's a foundational concept. It helps people understand the key differences between government and commercial market. There's a continuum here. And understanding where you are in that continuum makes a huge difference. If you misjudge where you are in the continuum, you think it's 80-20 and it's actually 60-40 or 37, 63, right. <laughs> it makes a huge difference in whether or not you're going to win and whether or not you're going to waste your time. That's a big part. I think that we, we could talk at length about how much time this takes. And if someone is investing in the shaping and you're not, and you don't know it, you're going to get a big surprise when this are, this happened the conversation I had with somebody yesterday, the RFP came out and it was a different acquisitions plan than they had foreseen. What does that mean? It means somebody shaped it. Is that nice to hear? No, but it happens. And don't be caught blindsided. In the original 80-20 episode, we, we didn't mean to imply that all government acquisition is just check that box and you'll win. It's 80% process. Don't even worry about the relationships. Just do exactly what the RP says and you're good. It, it's <laughs> never that easy. There's always some relationship involved. 
there's always some. And on the biggest acquisitions, big money is spent to win big money and relationships take over and get back to a point where it looks a lot more like the way commercial industry works. Money has a way of, of making that happen, huh? That's a, that's a whole different topic. I also want to emphasize a point that I, I touched on earlier. You can take relationships too far. There are rules to make sure that it's never 100% relationship. There's always some process involved, and there are people that have gone to jail for trying to extend the relationship a little too far. If you're a government employee, you can't negotiate your next job with industry based on an acquisition decision. There's a rule that's set up that says if you were the source selection authority for something, you can't flip to the industry side after you've made that decision and manage that program that you just awarded. It doesn't work that way. There's a lot more rules in place. But it's good to know that relationships matter, but the government still has this this rule set for relationships that doesn't necessarily exist in the commercial world. And with that, I think we're done for today. I'll talk to you later, Kevin. See you, Paul. That's it for this episode of the Contracting Officer Podcast. Join us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and through the Government Contracting Network group on Facebook. Don't forget, you can send me your topic ideas to paul at contractingofficerpodcast.com. Thanks for joining us. 